Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the LSC. My name is Richard Hilton. I'm the arts coordinator here. Um, tonight's talk is the third in a series of talking pictures organised to coincide with the exhibition Viewing Restricted, representing poverty. The exhibition is currently on show in the Atrium Gallery located in the old building and it runs until the 14th of June. Um, I hope no one came to see it today because there was no power in that building, so, um, <laughs> but I'm sure that it's, everything's been fixed. Um, whereas the first two talks involved artists participating in Viewing Restricted, um, Sharon Lovell and Jessica Dimmock, in keeping with the, some of the spirits and aim of Viewing Restricted, we wanted to create a platform to widen the debate about not only the subject of poverty, um, so, um, but more so the politics of representing poverty and other um, issues, um, attendant issues. So um, we're delighted to um, welcome Adam Bruinberg and Oliver Channerin, um, who've collaborated for over a decade. Um, in this time, they've produced six books examining the language of documentary photography in different ways. These include Mr. Enkizi's portrait in 2004, which documented South Africa 10 years after apartheid and accompanied its solo exhibition at the Photographer's Gallery. Um, an, an exploration of militarization of contemporary Israel, which was exhibited at the Stadelit Museum and the Red House, um, published by Stadel in 2007, um, produced in the cells below the former Ba'athist Party headquarters in Iraq. Adam and Oliver are recipients of many awards, including the Vic Ogden Award for the Royal Photographic Society. They're also trustees of the Photographer's Gallery and PhotoWorks, and they lecture in, in, on the MA in Documentary Photography at the London College of Communication. Um, so welcome to Oliver and Adam. And um, they're going to talk for about 40 minutes today, and after that, um, they'll take questions, they'll have to take questions, so thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Thanks very much for coming. Can um, you hear us clearly? Yeah? We've got some notes here because we've slightly changed our, our normal talk. Um, we've kind of gone back over the last 10 years and we've just looked at the various projects that we've done and we've just tried to examine a little bit the concerns that we've been dealing with, um, the different concerns that we've been dealing with in the different projects along the way. And what we've kind of discovered is this series of doubts, in a way, about, about our practice and about the role of witnessing, the role, role of being a photographer and recording events. Um, this is the first photograph or image that Adam and I did together. Um, and we, we did it while we were in a place called Lekole, which was a refugee camp in Tanzania um, on the border of Burundi and, and Rwanda. And it was home to 120,000 refugees, Hutu refugees, um, who'd fled over the border during the genocide. And we were really fascinated with this place because um, during the genocide in 94, there were thousands and thousands of photographers and journalists in Lekole taking pictures, recording stories. And in the intervening six years, um, these 120,000 people were still living there. Um, but there were no journalists, so they'd been forgotten or neglected by the media. And we were really interested in that. What happens when a place gets forgotten by the media? Um, we, we, when we were there, we met a sign painter who was um, called Lenin, and he, he was convinced he could tell a Hutu from a Tutsi, and we kind of took him up on the challenge and asked him to paint a portrait of both. And that's what you're seeing. 
And I think, like Ali was saying, although it's not a photograph, it's, it's, it kind of exposes a common thread that runs through the work, um, which is about, is, is it possible to represent trauma and conflict, and, and what is the role of, of representation in spaces like this? But I think it goes a step further, because um, I think we started to deal at this point with, with the idea that representation is complicit in trauma and in conflict. And maybe that it's not, it's not despite depiction that something like the genocide in Rwanda could take place, but partly because of depiction. Um, so very much about the complicity of images. And then we went back to Rwanda several years later, um, about six years later. Um, and in that time, a number of memorials have been created um, to the genocide. And we, w we had the chance to visit a few of them. And one of them was in this school um, on a hilltop. Um, Rwanda is really fertile and beautiful and very green and kind of almost the opposite of what you think of when you think of Africa or the kind of images we see of Africa in the news. Um, <clears throat> and on top of this hill in this very lush uh, landscape was this one school that had been attacked and 40,000 um, 40, children and adults who had been... Um, under siege in the school were, were killed and what they decided to do was rather than clean up the school they left the bodies there they put um, lime on the bodies to preserve them and they just left so you walked into these classrooms and there were just bodies everywhere and <clears throat> we both found kind of almost felt strangely numb like there was we almost felt nothing in a way it, this, this scene didn't look like a crime scene it looked like a kind of art installation or something um, and it just didn't feel horrific enough, which was so strange because obviously it was horrific. Um, there was a feeling, in a, in a way, it was like almost like looking at a photograph of death rather than looking at death. And it was like, we realized as well as one thing is like, when you look at a photograph, you're looking at something that has happened. You're not looking at the event. Um, and I think that, that started clicking in at that point. And I think it was at that point we started to recognize that that the event was a crisis of witnessing. And I think that's quite an important part. When we were back in Kigali, we, um, we just walked into a photo studio, which we always do wherever we are, and, and kind of in the back of the photo studio, in the dustbin, we found these amongst kind of hundreds of pictures. In order to make ID pictures in, in Rwanda, what they were doing is just taking straight-up portraits, and they would punch out the heads. And I think this points to another theme in the work that maybe runs through a lot of our work, which is it's actually everything that's outside of the frame. It's the stuff that's discarded that's maybe more telling and more important than actually what's inside it. Um, in November, on November the 1st in uh, 94, we traveled to Israel. And on the day we arrived, a suicide, a young boy, a 16-year-old Palestinian boy, walked into a market in Tel Aviv, and he detonated his um, bomb, um, his suicide pack. Um, and he kill, obviously killed, killing himself and l lots of other people. And something we didn't know, a kind of very horrific but in a strange way poetic fact, is that when a suicide bomb goes off, all the trees in the area around the explosion lose their leaves. So the force of the explosion pushes the leaves off the trees. And when you go to the site of, a, of, a, of these kind of attacks, the trees in the whole area are bare. So we decided... Um, to go to the site and to pick up one of these fallen leaves and to photograph it. And that's what you're looking at here. So I guess another, th another pointing to another theme is um, 
that, that images are not in our work about evidence, neither juridical nor symbolic evidence, and nor are they a kind of attempt at a shortcut to empathy. I think, it, if anything, we were trying to short-circuit short that shortcut to empathy. Um, on the same trip to, to Israel, we were invited, we visited Ramallah in the West Bank, and we were invited to visit Arafat in what was left of his compound. And it turned out to be, you know, just a couple of months before his death. It's probably the first official, last official portrait that was taken of him. And um, on the way out of um, the airport in Israel, the, the security guards must have x-rayed the film about 30 to 40 times. Obviously, knowingly, you know, knowing that some damage would be incurred to the film. And that kind of, I can't, yeah, you can't see it. That yellow band that runs through the negative is actually x-ray damage that happened to, um, to the film. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, what's quite interesting is that it just talks about this, it gives this picture material history. I think, in a way, the kind of film carries on seeing even after it's been exposed, which feels quite interesting. But we, kind of, we didn't make that link at first. We were really upset. We thought that uh, they'd ruined our picture we had the film processed and we saw this yellow mark on it and we even tried to scan the negative and to repair it. And then, and then as Adam said, we just realized that this damage was actually more interesting, that the narrative, of, the narrative was in this damage and that the damage said more about the Israeli siege of Palestinians in a way than the image that was embedded on it. I think the damage is also metaphorical. It kind of damages the stability that, that photographs seem to promise. Um, very soon after that, we um, embarked on a, a project in South Africa where we both come from, and we were commissioned by the Constitutional Court there to go back to document the country after 10 years of apartheid, of, of 10 years of democracy. And on this journey, we came across, we were actually in a casino outside Johannesburg, and the owners of the casino had been given permission to build, you know, to, to have gambling rights if they built a kind of rudimentary museum to apartheid, which we, it was like kind of gathering dust in the corner. And we came across this wax model of Mandela, um, who was in the process of being cleaned when we were there. And it felt really sneaky taking this picture. Like, it felt, he's such a haloed figure, he's such an untouchable icon, and we felt really, we felt very uncomfortable at this, in this moment. Like, do we take a picture of Mandela undressed? He was obviously being cleaned. So we did it, because we are quite sneaky. <laughs> and, you know, being sneaky is a bit about what photography is about. And um, getting into places and opening drawers and opening cupboards and being curious and fiddling with stuff. So um, we, this image was going to be published on the front cover of the Observer magazine, but they pulled it at the last minute. They decided they didn't want to publish it. And I think they probably felt that it was a bit sneaky, too. And it's just quite interesting to see how kind of, you know, th this image of an icon is quite brittle and inscrutable. And I think that it felt kind of profane to them. Um, so, th I mean, um, the way that Adam and I were working at this time um, was very much working with portraiture and taking pictures and speaking to people. Um, and we met hundreds of people during this period. And strange how you kind of never forget a face and you never forget this, the story that they told you. This was a young woman who was a winner of the Miss Teen South Africa Award in Johannesburg um, and her story really made an impression because she, she had never experienced the, the struggle in South Africa. She'd been born after Mandela had been released and she, had no, she obviously had no living memory of that and I remember we asked her, you know, what, what do you think, what did you think of apartheid? And she said, 
oh, ridiculously, it wasn't that bad because Mandela became famous. And that was kind of her ideology. But maybe we just take a step back and explain the methodology and where it comes from. Because Ollie and I actually started working together, not making pictures, but editing a magazine. And it was Colors Magazine that was started by Toscani, who you'll probably know for that, the kind of infamous Benetton advertising. And we had worked a little bit with him, and the way the magazine was constructed at that point was to use photojournalistic images that they would pull in from all over the world. And they would use them completely out of context, juxtaposing them one against another, never kind of quoting the caption that was often on the slide that would come in. And we progressively got more and more uncomfortable with that method. It just felt unaccountable, it felt disrespectful. Um, and we tried to inject, so we were, Toscani left quite acrimoniously from Benetton and we were invited to come in and take over again. And we agreed to do it if they would accept a kind of new method. Right. Yeah, and we took a we took a kind of ethnographic approach, which was, you know, we started working with a large format camera. We always placed the um, our subject in the centre of the frame. Um, it was a very kind of cumbersome and slow um, kind of nineteenth century ethnographic um, methodology. But we tried to undermine that by talking uh, by always linking the the image with the quote, with the with the voice of the person in it, and always recording the name of the person. So there was always the sense of um, some kind of collaboration. I mean, another thing is we put together these small teams of people and we go into the community. And just to explain the, ki the kind of, it was three years of work and we, what the idea was, was to explore these gated, contemporary gated communities. So we'd go to, this is in a prison, maximum security prison in South Africa. We went to psychiatric hospitals, to refugee camps. Um, and I think there were a few kind of inspirations to this, mostly literary. It was um, starting with Stalin, ironically, whose who's famous quote saying that one death is a tragedy, one a million are, is a statistic, I think became very important to us. And people like Rizard Kapuczynski or John Hersey, I think the idea that you could tell a very complex material and, you know, and traumatic history through the story of one person seemed to make sense to us at that point. This guy, his name was Dion, and he, we photographed him in Polsmore Maximum Security Prison in just outside Cape Town. And um, I mean, what Adam's saying is right. It's it was very. It's a very uncomfortable place to be. You're going into this. Uh, you're going into a prison. The the person that you're photographing and talking to, they don't really understand what you're doing. They don't understand that you're the the, the currency of a photograph. And I mean, in, specifically in a prison, there's the sense that maybe you can help that person. Um, it's also very confessional. It's almost like you're taking confession. I mean, Dion admitted to crimes that he hadn't even been punished um, for with us. What's quite amazing is, um, if you look at Dion's tattoos, there's this, um, South African prisons are essentially run by three gangs, and he's in the 28th, one of these gangs. So getting permission to navigate the prison from the government was relatively easy. They said, look, this is what we've inherited from a legacy of apartheid. But to actually get real permission, we had to get it from these gang leaders. Um, and their hierarchy mimics the hierarchy of the British military, because it happened at the same time as the changeover, so the 19th century. So Dion was a general. And although he's kind of naked here, everybody, all 15,000 prisoners, could identify his uniform that he walks around with, you know, down to the lapel and the kind of embroidery on his socks. This is in the same place. This was a woman, man, called um, Blondie. And Dion and Blondie were, in fact, kind of power couple in the, in the prison. They kind of controlled things. 
and Blondie insisted on kind of smoking three rocks of crack before this photograph. So you're kind of in a lawless situation. Um, this was in Patagonia. This was actually the last project that we did for this series, and it was we decided to go and record the life of a hermit who lived obviously completely alone in the middle of a forest. And again, it was like, look, we'd looked at all these kind of gated communities, and this time we wanted to look at the idea of a person outside of community, somebody who was kind of completely alone. So that's old man Miss Misa, who's his mortal enemy, because um, Rolando Trujillo, who was our chosen hermit, had slept with his daughter, unfortunately. <laughs> this is in South Africa again. This is a cause of circumcision ritual, which is very tricky to get into. They're very private and... Um, Normally they don't allow outsiders in and these young boys go into the bush for a period of a month and they have the circumcision and they have become this transformation into men um, and it's, it's very sacred. So we were very lucky to be in there. But I think, you know, we went into a situation like that which is kind of an ethnographic kind of situation and we kind of went up tentatively to that particular boy and we said, excuse me, do you speak English? Can we take your picture? And he was like, of course I speak English. I mean, I, I live in Johannesburg and I'm studying to be an accountant and I speak English perfectly. I think it's an important theme, just the naivety of the kind of documentary photographer, like fulfilling the stereotype of that role. This was in Star City, which is home, was home of this Russian space program. And it's, you know, the minute the space race ended, so did the, um, the floors stayed wood, parquet and linoleum and the fashion stopped. And it was still 30,000 people um, you know, connected with the space program, living there. This is Tessa, who we found in South Africa. Back to Polesmore Prison. And just to say, every one of these pictures was always accompanied by their names and an interview, quite an in-depth interview. We had quite a very <laughs> comical experience. We were asked to judge in a prison competition, art competition, here in England, in London. And um, we went into the room to look at all the different work. And this picture, huge oil painting, had been produced by um, one of the prisoners. That's a, that's a funny <laughs> edit. <laughs> <coughs> this was a um, miserable cosmonaut we found in Star City who we, um, we asked if aliens have pets, but he refused to answer. And that's People. another painting we got <laughs> sent in. This is Papa Alfonso, who we'll never forget. This is in Macedonia. Um, in Shutka, which is the largest Roma gypsy um, camp in the world. And he was sitting in the barber shop, kind of just looking cool. And um, so we went to talk to him. And um, yeah, these are, he had in his back pocket a series of Polaroids of him all over Europe with um, very young women. <laughs> <laughs> but more than just te testifying to his perversion, it also showed that without a passport, he had traversed Europe, you know, over and over again. And, most people in Shudka managed to do that. This was on the border of um, Kurdistan, Southeast Turkey and Iraq, literally two weeks before the war in 2001. This is in a place called Leisure World, which is the biggest gated community for rich, elderly people in Northern California. But I think we tried to apply the same kind of process. It's very easy to get very to get cynical in a in a wealthy um, white retirement village and we tried to have take the same process to use the same technique photographically but also to ask the same questions um, and the I same mean I think Bill, also what started to happen to us is that Ollie and I started to lose faith in, in this equation and um, 
we started noticing that something that happens is every time you take a picture, particularly in spaces like this where people are not aware of the cultural, the political, the economic kind of power of a, of a photograph, there seems to be this kind of unspoken promise that's going on. And I think everybody we encountered felt like somehow their suffering would be alleviated through this act, through this contract that you were enacting with them. And we realized quite soon on that we could never live up to that contract. And I think that kind of power dynamic started really disturbing us. Yeah, it felt like we couldn't just go out and make more concerned, politically, socially concerned photographs of poor people, desperate people, distressed people. You know, always knowing that this picture wasn't actually going to have any consequence. Um, it was going to get seen, sure, in a lecture theatre, in our books. It's going to get seen in galleries and even, you know, on the walls of museums. But... What was the effect going to be of this picture? Was it going to have any impact? Were the people in it, were they ever going to see this picture? And were they ever going to benefit from it we, in any yeah. way? We, we often talk about um, Janet Malcolm's book, The Journalist and the Murderer, where she talks brilliantly about this kind of power dynamic, that instead of a subject who encounters a journalist kind of bottling up and being you know, on guard, they seem to just kind of open up. And I think we encountered that. With Always we were surprised by people agreeing to be photographed. And the kind of power dynamic that you have being behind this camera um, always disturbed us. And I guess that's why we came up with the title for the talk, which is actually from somebody called Jordan Crandall, term, coined that term, which is the winning side of an image. And how to somehow break that unidirectional power relationship that we've we found. At, at this stage, I think we were, we were grappling with this a little bit, but in quite a naive way. So this is a, a portrait a guy called Mario, and it's in a psychiatric hospital in Cuba. And before we went to this hospital, we thought a lot about how do you, how do you photograph somebody who's mentally ill, who's in a, who's hospitalised. I mean, these are subjects who these are people that are highly medicated, um, very naive about the process of being photographed, and like we said before, the currency of a photograph. Um, and we looked at the history of photography and madness, because the two have always been linked. There's, madness is so photogenic. Kind of the camera loves ma um, insanity. And so we looked at that, and we saw that there was this quite this power relationship. Often you had black and white photographs of patients in fetal positions on the ground. You know, there, was this, there wasn't this collaborative process, so we wanted to try and inject that into the process. Um, and we came up with this method of having a release cable where they could take their own pictures. And this felt like such a poetic response to the camera. Mario turned his back on it. Um, each of them had a kind of reason for what they wanted to do in front of the camera. Um, she kind of said, I, you've got to bring me a chair because I'm an artist. And an artist always sits before she gets painted. Um, he, he, was, he said, can I take two pictures? And he took these two pictures. And he said, that's my struggle, my in my head and my heart. Um. Okay, whole different set of portraiture. This is um, this is our next project, which was an examination of, of I guess, the state of Israel and their relationship with representation. Um, this is a portrait of an Israeli soldier dressed up as their idea of a, a Palestinian militant, photographed by another Israeli soldier, printed and pasted onto wood and used as target sniper training. Um, and this is just really interesting, again, thinking about representation. I mean, this idea of a kind of very theatrical rehearsing of 
the idea of a stereotype and of an enemy, you know. Yeah, we found those two portraits in this place called Chicago, which is an uh, IDF military training camp in the Negev Desert. And we were really fascinated with this place. It took us a year to get in it. Um, and they only let us photograph in there for about an hour and a half. But um, we were fascinated about it because this place somehow represented everything that had happened in the Middle East mil militarily in the last 30 years. It was built in the 70s to train Israeli troops to fight in Lebanon. Um, and then it was expanded again to um, train troops to fight in the first and the second intifada. Um, it was used to train American troops to fight in Iraq and Afghanistan. The Battle of Fallujah was rehearsed here. Um, a attempted assassination of Saddam Hussein was also rehearsed here. So was the uh, Israeli withdrawal from the, from the Gaza Strip. So it was like it was as if this place was a a decommissioned film set in a way that had been stripped bare of all the signs of, of people, all this the is, carpets and doors. And this is particularly harrowing. We came across all these stars all the way through, and one of the people from the spokesperson unit who was explaining to us what it is, is they said that Occidental truths since the Battle of Algiers have always been most exposed um, using the normal <coughs> syntax of a city. So if they use the streets, the alleyways, the doors and the windows, that's when they're vulnerable. So the IDF have developed this technique where they use ultrasound to see through the walls. If they deem it safe, they'll blast a hole, which this hole represents, and then they'll move through, and they call it worming. And he explained to us that from, from, uh, with an aerial view of a city like Ramallah, you could have 7,000 troops moving through, which they have had, and they won't be visible in the streets. They'll just be kind of literally kind of moving, worming through the cities. I mean, I think what's interesting just about it is how... Chicago has been used as a laboratory, but in a broader argument, how Israel is so much used as a laboratory for kind of new military techniques. And just extending that, that um, metaphor of this as a kind of a film set, these felt like props almost. We found these in a um, bomb disposal unit in Jerusalem, and they're, they're recreations of suicide bombs that were built by Palestinian bomb makers and used, detonated against Israeli targets. Um, and each of these has a story. Um, the first one was a watermelon that had been left on a bus and it exploded. Um, if you look closely, you see that each of them has a little um, switch on it. Um, and that's a really very dark thing. It's called a, a dead man switch. And it was developed by Palestinian um, bomb makers in response to the Israeli technique of shooting suspects in the head. And what the switch is, is that when a bomb maker is about a, a bomb, uh, suicide bomber is about to go out, he switches it up, and that doesn't detonate it, that just uh, alarms it. And then when he releases it, it explodes. Um, and so we just started to think of the strange exchange of these lethal gifts between these two people. This kind of mutual obsession with one another. I mean, I think also just to bring it back to representation, it's was quite interesting, because talking to the bomb disposal unit, who were quite proud of these like meticulously you know, recreated bombs, it, it struck us as this idea that once something was represented for them, it was somehow controllable or containable, or they had mastered it. And I think the impetus behind photography or documentary photography is often the same thing, um, certainly in our experience, I think. And this is a less, uh, a more innocuous object, it's just an osprey egg, um, and we've taken from a, a museum in Brighton. Um, but we were, we were reading in the newspaper and we discovered a, about a guy called Colin uh, Wilson who was a notorious egg thief 
um, Britain's most, most notorious, and he died two years ago, fell out of a tree while trying to get this egg. Um, and when the police went to his home, he knocked on the door and his wife opened up and they went inside and they discovered that there were eggs everywhere. There were every drawer, every cupboard, every cabinet, under the bed, in the kitchen cabinets, there were eggs. Um, rare eggs, really precious eggs. That there's actually no reason to collect them because Victorian museums are full of them. But Colin Watts Wilson was just obsessed. Um, and each of these eggs had been labelled and catalogued very carefully. And we thought, this is a bit like being a photographer. Being a photographer is a bit like being a crazy collector. You go out into the world and you take these pictures and you impress on this little piece of plastic or on this little file an image and you bring it home and you catalogue it and you put it in boxes. And our studio is full to the brim with millions of these boxes. I remember when we were, we, a few years ago, we went onto the roof of Heathrow just to start talking to the plane spotters. And it was um, just to understand their motivation. And, so, and a few of them actually made the comparison with, with colonial sense of collection. And they said, we're just fulfilling our kind of British heritage. And they really felt it was the same thing. I think there's this sense that photography has always been linked to colonialism um, and colonial expansion. And it was always used as a tool to map and to catalogue, um, and in quite a sinister way as well. Um, and and you know, we thought of ourselves a little bit above that, but actually we're guilty of the same thing. And this is a good example. We, we decided we were really intrigued to go and meet the tallest man in the world who lives in the Ukraine. And this is a picture of his hand, which was, you know, not as big as that, but it was, um, <laughs> it was very big. And um, we, we went to the Ukraine with a kind of fantasy in our, in our heads about meeting this very tall man who lived in the middle of the snow, in the middle of winter, in a tiny little hut. It was a kind of a fairy tale in our minds. And when we got there, we discovered a kind of much more depressing reality, um, that this was, Leonid was sick, and his sickness was his currency, in a way. And every centimetre that he grew, he was growing closer and closer to death. Um, and we also discovered that we were just one of hundreds and hundreds of journalists and photographers and, and TV crews that were curious about him and had come to visit him on a daily basis. But what was interesting, he had this tiny little sister and all the crews, like, ritually would get him to stand next to the sister because this idea of the kind of comparison of the freak with his little thing was, his little sister was the kind of idea. And I think the only picture we had landed up using was this of his hand and we reproduced it at five by four inches, which is the size of a negative to try and kind of deny that idea of, of the spectacle. And I think the spectacle has become a big word in our practice, a big kind of scary word. And there's two texts that we've read quite recently that have had a big impact on us. One is there's a, there's a group of writers um, called Retort who are located in the Bay Area, and they wrote a piece called Afflicted Powers. And I'll just summarize it probably hopelessly and very shortly, but it's, um, they talk about, they describe 9-11 as an image wound that was afflicted onto America. And they said partly the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq has been a search, almost a genocidal search, for image replies to this wound. So we could think of the toppling of, of Saddam's statue, him coming out of his little rabbit warren, that horrible picture of the, the kind of dental, you know, literally we're getting inside his body. And then, obviously, his execution. I mean, ironically for America, I think what's... what's um, the, the real heritage is the Abu Ghraib pictures. And then there's a guy, and Boris Groys, who's another theorist, who talks about 
on the other side of the war, or the so-called war on terror, is, is, is terrorists who are making very carefully, aesthetically planned images of, of terror. You know, the beheading of Nick Berg, or these confessions they make on television before they go in on an operation. And I think both, both arguments, are, both people are engaging in this war of images, and a war of images that are very spectacular. And I think we've made it a real um, strategy to try and avoid that. Yeah, well, I think we wanted to disengage from that um, language of spectacle in some way. And this was kind of one attempt. We decided to go to Iraq, and it was really at the height of the insurgency in Iraq. Um, it was after the American invasion. And we, we decided to go to a place called the Red House, which was a building with this horrific history. It had been Saddam Hussein's headquarters in Kurdistan. And it was an administrative building that happened to be red. And in the basement, there were these cells that it would... It was famous or notorious all over Iraq because in these cells there, they, there was regular torture. Um, and when we went down into the cells, indeed we discovered that the, the, the rooms had been lined with wood in order to um, muffle the sound of, um, of screaming. And all the walls were covered in these little drawings um, produced by, sol by um, Kurdish soldiers who had been imprisoned there in solitary confinement for, for months and months at a time. And some of these drawings had been produced just by carving out of the plaster with fingernails. Um, and that, I mean, th this felt like a kind of hidden, um, I don't know, like the subconscious. It, it, and it felt quite strange to be going into a war zone and coming back with these very obscure pieces of drawings on walls. In fact, we went into the, um, Alan Jenkins, the editor of the Observer magazine, called us in and said, oh, I've heard you've just been, can you bring in your stuff? And we brought in and showed this, and he was like, have you got Asperger's? Because it's like, this is deeply disturbing that you've brought just this back from them. I mean, although we've done a lot of work in, in really difficult areas and conflict zones and psychiatric hospitals, and it's still, I mean, we're still very frightened when we go on these journeys. I mean, and, you know, you ask yourself, why am I... <coughs> You know, leaving my comfort zone. Why am I getting on a, leaving my warm cup of coffee in my newspaper, and I'm getting on a plane and I'm going um, to somewhere dangerous where I might lose my leg or lose, you know, um, lose my life? I mean, and just to take a photograph. I mean, why do that? It's a, it's a very strange calculation to make in your head. And it seems like it's kind of part of the motivation for a lot of these um, adrenaline junkie photojournalists, but certainly not ours. This is a funny story. Is just before this trip to Iraq, um, we were talking to people about this dilemma of and who to tell, whether to, to tell our families and, and girlfriends and stuff. And somebody gave us what turned out to be foolish advice, I think, which is just write a letter. Don't tell anybody. Tell them you're going on holiday. Write a letter and leave it with your best friend. And if something happens, it'll explain why you did it, why you went there. And um, literally that day, I was walking down Charing Cross Road, and in one of the second-hand bookstores, I saw this book just like in the window. And I bought it. I didn't even know what it was. And I took it home. And I'm reading that night. And it comprises of just three, three pages in English, Italian, and French. And it's a letter that Lauro Di Bossi wrote to his best friend and posted it the day before he flew alone. And it's the first time he's ever flown an airplane from Corsica into Italy and over Rome, really low over Rome, and distributed half a million pamphlets, like anti-fascist pamphlets, in 1933. And then he disappeared. So, of course, the letters were published in all the newspapers. But um, it was this that decided for Ali and I not to write a letter and actually just be <laughs> <the> up <other. laughs>
We did, however, decide to get ourselves embedded with the British Army and head to Afghanistan. Soon um, after that, yeah. <laughs> um, a strange calculation to make. And um, so what you're watching here are stills from a film that we made on this journey. And the, journey, the, film, the film documents the journey of a box. And the box is um, full of photographic paper. And it's, it takes this journey from our studio in London onto planes and onto, into taxis and into tanks and onto helicopters and, and, and onto the backs of the shoulders of soldiers further and further towards the theatre of war and eventually it arrives on the front line. So the box contains 50 metres of paper, photographic paper. It's like 76 centimetres wide and weighs, it's heavy, it's like 15 kilograms. And it was, you know, 45 degrees Celsius. And obviously we hadn't been up front. A lot of our work, the kind of talk, the, the, the subtext of our work is a negotiation with the power apparatus. In this sense, the British military. So we, they gave us permission because they thought we were photojournalists and we were there to illustrate their narrative. And we didn't take cameras. We took a video camera and these are stills of that. And this box of paper. And when we got there, to our horror, we discovered that... Um, most of the deaths that are happening amongst the British military, and, and it escalated kind of madly the week we arrived, happen in these Range Rovers, they're Land Rovers essentially, that were designed for the Troubles in Northern Ireland. So they're really lightly armour-plated. And they go on these six-hour patrols in, this, in the heat of the desert. They've got two tiny apertures in the back. And they cannot withstand these IED mines that's in which people are dying. And, you know, it was crazy that a lot of the soldiers get up and they put a tourniquet every morning over each of their limbs, ready in case something happens that they could just pull this thing. So in response to events that would ordinarily be recorded by photojournalists, um, we decided rather not to take a picture but to unravel uh, six metres of paper, expose it into the sunlight for 20 seconds and put it back in the dark box. Um, so on the first day that we were there, it happened to be pretty much the worst week of the war um, since it, it had begun. Um, and on the first day, um, a group of Afghani soldiers were attacked, um, and they were all killed um, by a suicide bomber. Um, and when the news got back to the base that we were staying in, one of the soldiers had a brother in the base, and when he heard the news, he took his gun and he shot himself in the heart, committed suicide. Um, so we decided to expose our first roll of paper, and we called it the brother's suicide. Um, just to add to that, sorry, is that we actually turned one of these Land Rovers, we sealed up those two holes in the back, and that became our dark room. So each time one of these events Ali described, we'd open the door and just expose a roll of six metres of film to on the light. The, on, the, oh yeah, on the second day, um, a fixer for the BBC was dragged out of his car, gun to his head, he was sh um, executed by the Taliban. Um, and again, when we heard the news of that, which just happened very near to the base that we were staying in, um, we unrolled some more paper and exposed to the light and we called it the fixer's execution. I mean, embedding is a crazy experience because you have this unprecedented access to the war that's been granted to you by the military, but they have, the exchange is this dark one, unprecedented <coughs> access to you. And it's literally as if, you know, at the end of each day these memory cards are scrutinized and it's almost as if they're kind of really controlling a lot of what you are able to photograph. It almost feels like the army is taking your camera and lifting it up and composing your picture and clicking your button. This, clicking is, button. this is actually in the back of one of those vehicles. So I guess this, you know, this thing is, 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 is thought about, constructed as a bit of a performance. And it's a bit of a kind of Brechtian performance where we're trying to interrupt the normal narrative because we co-opted the military, we co-opted this vehicle 
but we're not kind of, like I said, illustrating the narrative that photographers have in, you know, historically been there to, to narrate. And again, this felt sneaky as well. Um, you know, we were, you're in a war zone. Um, soldiers are fighting for their lives. They're, they're working, they're busy. Um, and you're taking up precious time and resources to get these guys to carry a cardboard box around. I mean, it is absurd, certain says. Um, and it felt very subversive. But I think we felt that as embedded, so as embedded journalists, there was no way for us to be subversive by taking pictures. Um, and in fact, although we had a camera with us, we would delete those pictures at the end of each day. So the pictures, the results, we're going to show you just details of now. I think um, what was most important to us is that they were inverse of a traditional photojournalistic image. And there's three things that inform that image, or the so-called quality of it. I think it's composition, it's proximity to danger, and it's value as evidence. And I think these things totally undermine that, and that's part of, part of our agenda, it was. Many of you will be familiar with John Cage's um, 1960s composition, Four Minutes and 33 Seconds. And in that piece, it's an amazing piece because a pianist comes on the stage and he opens the piano and he doesn't play the piano for four seconds, four minutes and 33 seconds, and then he closes the piano and he leaves. And in that time, the audience is being asked to listen, and perhaps in a different way to the way they would ordinarily listen. Um, and in that time you hear the shuffling of clothes and the rain on the roof and the people moving around and shuffling their programs. And I think Cage was asking us to listen, to attend, in a way that maybe we don't. And in this project, I think what we wanted was, rather than to deny a view, um, we were asking people to engage, to, to try and look a little bit harder. Thank you. That's all. Um, I mean, we've had we have these th these kind of conversations with ourselves, um, and when you're in like a very extreme place, like a psychiatric hospital, it's just so um, exaggerated those problems. I remember there was one we were once in an, um, in a psychiatric prison in Italy, and we were taking a, a picture of a guy who was tied to the bed, 
mean, the, he was actually tied to a bed. There was a hole drilled into the bed that he could shit through. And this was a man who was completely incapacitated. And you, you say to the guy, can I take your picture? And he says, sure. And you, so you set up the camera. And, and in that case, he did the strangest thing. He lifted his head, which is the only part of his body that he could move. And he smiled. And you, you're, you're struck with this. Like, is it, you know, do you, do you take this picture? Is it fair? Yes, the head of the, of the prison has signed a piece of paper saying this is okay, but does this man understand it? And we struggle with that a lot. And, for example, in, in that case, we didn't publish that picture until later we used it in our book where we were able to write about the experience. And I don't know if that makes it better. No, but I think it does. And I think to answer your first part of your question is what we didn't show here is always that there's text attached to those images. And, for instance, Zeon, who was the tattooed guy, we spent you know, a good part of eight hours with him talking. And he was so powerful in the prison, we even had, he had a direct phone line. And when we were back in Italy, we were speaking to him all the time. So the point is that the, the, the interviews would always show the complexity, the kind of emotional complexity of their life. you know, And obviously not sufficiently. And obviously they are fulfilling a stereotype, you know. But I think the point is, was to use text always. Mm -hmm. There's really a, a, the picture of the um, of the leaf. You used a great phrase for a poetic fact, right? I, I, I read on the internet some of the stuff that you've mentioned here, particularly about the Afghan adventure that you went on. Mm. And you tell the story in the accompanying text, which I thought was an incredible poetic of the guys going out and putting tourniquets on in the Snatch Land Rover. Presumably that's the sort of thing you either would not have been allowed to take as a photograph because of your embedded position. And yet it exists in my mind as a picture. Yeah. I can see it. It's that kind of poetic fact. Now it works brilliantly as a piece of written journalism. Do you think that the image is unable to do that? That you wouldn't be able to I think like images are, you know, they're kind of these weird things where everything, I think there's a misconception about what a good image is, is that it has to work alone and you have to have a relationship with it that will somehow be poetic and also objective in, you know, giving you a whole amount of information. I think an image life is very long and I think the fact that you got all this information around that stuff is not coincidental. I think we're quite deliberate in delivering <coughs> a lot of more information than just the image to inform it. And I think um, I think images change. You know, they're like there's this great writer called Ariella Azoulay who's written this book called The Civil Contract of Photography, and she talks about an image as being it's not just that moment, it's not a still thing. She almost talks about images as if they're moving image, that they they have a life that's going to change over time. After a talk like this, you know, you will think differently about some images you see. Do you know what I mean? And I think all those interactions between, it's not just that moment of taking a picture and printing it and putting it up and it's stable. So, so the writing and the narrative that you add to the image makes it almost a moving image, sort of expands it in a way. It, it, it prolongs it its time, it. yeah, and it's going to change. Yeah. Yeah. No um, how do you think you've changed as, as people and as artists in the 10 years you've been working together and doing the things you've done and going to the places you've been? How has it kind of impacted on who 
They did. <coughs> Some so did. So what, what, what's in your mind now afterwards? And are you satisfied with the, the effects of that sequence? I think, first of all, that sequence are spills from a film. That's what they are. So it's, um, and the film is somehow works very differently, as we know, to still. So it's a very different experience. But... I think you are right, is that there were some soldiers who were deeply cynical and kind of humoured by it. There were others who engaged it. But I think what we intended was to, it was like a post-mortem of being embedded. That's what we wanted to show. So that it's almost what you see, everything outside of that box is what, what, what we expect to see from images of war. But it's interrupted by the silly creature who becomes our proxy and your proxy. You know? It's like, where's Wally? And Wally's always... It was a really strange experience being in this media tent in a war zone because you, it's, the war still feels far away. It still feels like you're reading, you're getting information about things that are happening very nearby, but they still feel like headlines in a newspaper. And just watching that whole mechanism, the way it worked, the way news came in and some information went out and got published and other things were, were not of interest. Um, and also, I mean, there was one incident that was remarkable. The, we heard about a, a death of a soldier, not from the theatre that we were in, but from some newspaper in England, and they had heard about it first. And we discovered that the newspapers have this whole network of basically spies within the military feeding information back. So, you know, we were interested, we were more interested in that, in this mechanism. Because, I mean, war has always been documented and photographed, and you hear about these very brave photojournalists in the, in the cast of Kappa, and these, that, that school of photographers, I mean, think of themselves as not as war photographers, but as anti-war photographers. And we question that. You know, I, I don't believe that. You, you look at the work of somebody like James Naftway, who spent his life in pretty much every conflict zone for the last 30, 20 years, documenting the horrors of war. And yes, he thinks of himself as somehow outside of that mechanism. But he isn't. He's a part of it. He's, He's totally part of, the, yeah. of, of, of a market. And that market is a, is a very worrying one at the moment because I think the way that we've seen Afghanistan and Iraq is particularly sanitized vision of that war. And there's, a, there's an artist called Thomas Hershorn who showed with us at the Brighton Biennial who, what he did is he scoured the internet and downloaded images that show the real effects of munition on human bodies. And he constructed this kind of 18-meter banner and it was the most horrific thing you've ever seen. And there's what he talks about and what we've spoken about is this tacit agreement that exists between editors in magazines and newspapers and advertisers. There's certain things you, you cannot show in a magazine because there needs to be perfume adverts. And, and we, we felt that to be really subversive, we had to go up there and not show anything. Just 
pretty much what we did. And Boris Gross talks about this two-pronged attack, which is show everything, which Hirshhorn does, or show nothing, withhold. But don't go there and make beautiful silhouetted pictures of soldiers against the, the desert sky, which is what we see every day, from the Guardian to the Sun to everything. And that's, you know, that's, that's part of the marketing. I'm just I think it's interesting that with this last project, because there were six meter long abstract works, and it was interesting to see people's responses in the various shows, because people, they see them as this kind of blank space and they can project their thing, and some people were like, whoa, that's very violent, or, you know, because it's blood red stuff, and, and in that way, that's one thing that worried us, is that they could function as these kind of very material, very modernist ideas of a memorial, right? But I think, but I think that's yeah. not what we were intended for. I mean, what we wanted more was to say, what are you expecting to see? What are you expecting us to bring back as witnesses? But in a way, it's also like you described it the other night. Is you know how would scientists would dig into the ice and bring up this thing, and it's just the strata there would say, on the 16th of May, you know, 1723, I was miserable. You know, and these things are actually that. It's it's the light on that day, on you know, in that moment. It's actually the essence of a photograph. And as an object, it is a witness to something. You know what I mean? It's got scratches and it's there. And we always show it as that object. We don't reproduce it. But it's interesting that you refer to memorial because um, you know this, this this box is quite an intriguing object. It's like it's this you know six-sided thing that's quite mysterious in a way. It's 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 dark inside and light. You can't open it. Um, and it's in a way, it's quite an a remarkable form and we started kind of thinking about that and that immediately took us to you know the minimalists the kind of Donald Judds who were making these strange but they were fascinated with boxes with the box shape um, and then we started reading we discovered that um, Stanley Kubrick when he was planning and writing 2000 and you know 2001 you know he was he was looking for a form to somehow express this all-knowing other otherly power this mysterious thing, and he went for this huge, big, monolithic box, which he apparently stole from the minimalists. But it also works in another way, which is this, um, I don't know if any of you have heard of a MacGuffin, which was Hitchcock's big technique, which, you know, you'd get somebody right in the beginning walking by with a briefcase, and you'd follow that briefcase for ages, and you'd keep thinking about it, and it would lead you right through the kind of whole narrative, but it, there was nothing in the briefcase, so it was kind of um, yeah. MacGuffin in a way. No, no, no. I think we're, what we're, we've actually the, the last project has been we've been researching somebody else's photograph for for many months, which is a photograph taken just after the revolution in Iran, um, and it's this remarkable picture of um, I don't know if you've seen it, but 
it's 11 Kurds and it's the moment of them being shot by 11 of Khomeini's um, soldiers and it was published anonymously you know, because the Tehran newspaper wanted to protect the identity of the photographer and it went on to win the Pulitzer Prize and this photographer lived in anonymity for 27 years and he's just been um, kind of outed by a young American writer who we went to meet in New York and so you know, and it changed the history of, of media in, in, in Iran because the next day the government went in and took over control of the, of the newspapers and have been. But we're just examining his relationship to that moment of trauma. What was it like, you know, for him to document that and how... It and it's got all these different biographies because there's two brothers who run a commercial studio in L.A. and they are pro-regime, I mean pro-monarchy, anti-regime, and they print this picture every and go and march in the streets as an anti-regime thing. And Razmi now, the photographer, lives in Tehran and takes wedding photographs. It's this kind of strange... Um, so, uh, but it's also strange for us because we, we don't just take the pictures that we've shown you today. We also take pictures from magazines, portraits of people, or we even do advertising. And in a way, I think what we've tried to do in our heads is keep these two things separate. You know, oh, well, we're artists and we take this, these kind of concerned images but we also make our living from this thing. And I think what we're started, where we're starting to go is to try not to think of these things as separate, but to see them as kind of part of the same thing. And it's, it's increasingly untenable. You know, you can't be talking about the violence and the power of images and then going and making them in a studio to sell a perfume. So that's become quite... We're starting to examine that. So in a way, you're just um, making a statement, but you are not saying that it's impossible So your, sort of your relationship with the, the subject, you mentioned earlier before that um, there was sort of like this implicit um, relationship or this implicit sort of belief that you were going to impact their lives in some way. Um, how, is there some way that you resolve this sort of like with people in like refugee camps? Like how does that come back to them or does it come back to them at all? I think that we were interested to, if you accept the idea that your pictures can never really change, that kind of political change. If you accept that, then wh where do your pictures go from there? And I think that's the question we were interested in. But also this idea that images like that are meant to create this empathy. And what, you know, that that's it's a useless emotion at some point. I mean, you just feel guilt and empathy, but you turn over the newspaper. You know, so I think there was something wrong, there's something wrong with that equation. So at the moment, we're just trying to kind of short-circuit that shortcut. But um, so we ha we're not engaging in that methodology.
We did, we did as much as possible to try to do that. And it wasn't just actually as a, an act to give the person the picture, but as a, as a safeguard to us. That if you know that someone's going to see this picture, you, you're very careful. You want to try and also make them look the way that they might want to look. And you don't want to, you know, Adam and I are, as we said, very sneaky. And we, we make up stories all the time. And it's quite good if you, if you say to yourself, I'm going to send this back to the person, because then you have to, it's like a kind of guard. I think there's this idea of photojournalism specifically, which is that you take a picture and it mobilizes shame. I mean, that's the, that's the equation. And, yeah, we question that. But it doesn't have to mobilize shame, though. Everything can be more than that, surely. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm thinking from a, an NGO perspective, you know, obviously, personal images to, um, you know, mobilize people to advocate or give money or, you know, do you think that doesn't work at all? Or what work? I think there really needs to be, yeah, because I think, again, I think NGOs are tied in with that kind of quite lethal economy that we're starting to talk about. And it's no coincidence that where NGOs are, photographers are, and they're often not in the places where they're really necessary. And you know about the whole economy of, of, of the NGOs, and, and that, that's linked very much with image making. And I think, as well, it kind of reinforces a lot of stereotypes of the victim, and of, you know, it's like, um, which is just like, it's outdated and it and it and it hides the complicity. So it's actually it's just it's easier to feel empathy than it is to feel complicit in something. trauma than a lot of people and certainly less than any nurse or dentist <laughs> no so I don't I don't think we actually have really witnessed a lot um, but it's just become and, and sometimes taking a picture is easier than actually just looking you know and that's kind of well known how it's easy to hide behind a picture I mean a, a camera Yeah, I mean, some of the experiences that we've had have been difficult. And we, and we, when we would, I mean, we don't, you know, we're not in extreme situations all the time, but there was a time that we were going into very difficult places a lot. And we, dis we discovered that we were being very, very controlled. 
in those places when we were like in a place like the prison you know you're, you're on your best behavior you're very very controlled and you're very polite and you're very organized and say the right thing and be in the right spot and we discovered that when we would go out of those situations it, we would keep kept getting into trouble kept like getting into fights and you know um, so and that, that there was this quite schizophrenic relationship between being working and just normal life and I think we decided to slow things down a lot. But it's actually the kind of inverse. I think my experience has been the more I've been exposed to and the more you kind of discover the complexity and the reasons, the less frightening it is and the more kind of committed you, you feel to the place. So it's actually been, it's calmed my vision of, you know, I've got, I've got family in Israel and we've spent quite a lot of time in Palestine. They haven't and they've got this kind of toxic fear of, of people who live so close by, you know, and just because we've investigated it, it, you know, and really tried to grapple with it and understand it and have spent time there, I think it just, it's, it makes it easier, it makes it less traumatic. That's my understanding of it. The only thing is, it's kind of, it does, it is a little bit haunting with this idea that sometimes I think, God, you know, we're sitting here giving that thing, people are still in that camp. You know, and it's like nine years later. it's just got to run in parallel I was just saying to, we were sp I was speaking to somebody just before who was saying the teacher's theory and saying no, this stuff's pretty bad this stuff's been written about in the 70s 70s and 80s it's really well known theory it's just like in the photojournalistic and documentary crowd they haven't engaged these debates so it's like it's such a scary thing when you think about it it's like people in control of the way we see the world have not been thinking about the way we see the world, you know, and it's like when we judge that world press photo, it's a massive thing. It's like the, you know, millions of people see those winning images, and it definitely, we both think it definitely governs the way the next year's images are imaged. You know what I mean? So it's this kind of strange relationship that's very scary. So I think it need that like that that awareness and of, of, of how images work needs to be integral to the story always, otherwise it's a useless story. Question. You were saying how important the text is to contextualize. Your box, you said, was really a video. How do you put the text in to a video? How do you contextualize the video? It's, it's almost <coughs> as if in that piece of work, the video was the text, because the video contextualized the pictures. So the pictures made no sense on their own. I mean, they could have been pieces of paper that had been exposed on the roof of this building. So the video, 
kind of acts in the way that text often acts in our work, mm. which is to contextualize and explain a little bit of the process. And I think words have done that in the past in our work. One last question, I think. Yeah, just to follow on from, from that, um, when I first saw those images, I saw them without the video, and they didn't make sense to me. I didn't really I didn't understand what was going on. So how do you make an effort to kind of make sure those two things don't get separated? Because it really changes kind of the meaning of the images. Because I saw them as these kind of beautiful objects that have been created from horrific events. We do. Every time we've shown it in public spaces, we'll show the film with the images always, yeah. But I think also, you know, in the beginning when we started working, we were so hell-bent on kind of making it all so clear. We'd have big fat text in the image and it was just a bit like there wasn't room for somebody to actually feel anything in front of the work. And I think it's okay if it's not immediately all there. It's also okay if somebody's got a problem and then slow, you know what I mean? It's never going to be satisfy everything, so it's... Before I thank Adam and um, Oliver, I just wanted to draw your attention to this issue of photojournalism. We do have, as part of this series, a talk on the 3rd of June, um, chaired by Paul Lowe, who's the um, Head of Photography at the London College of Communication, um, called The Future Picture in the World, Imaging a, Glo Imaging in a Global Era, and that's on the 3rd of June. Um, I'd like to thank Adam and Oliver for um, their candid um, talk today, and thank you all as well for your questions. Thank you. Thank you.